Well, the gospel writers record seven statements or expressions that Jesus made from the cross. You heard a couple of them during our reading of Matthew's gospel uh, portraying the passion of Jesus. And I'm going to talk about one particular one of those tonight. In fact, of those things that Jesus said when he was on the cross, scholars agree that there's one particular one that's the hardest saying to understand of everything that he said. And that's Matthew's uh, words in Matthew 27, 45 through 46. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no parable, no prophecy, no sharp tongue remark that Jesus spoke to the wicked Pharisees that confuses us, I'd say, than Jesus' words here about his God and what his God was, was doing. And it doesn't really matter whether we read the words in Aramaic or Greek or, or English. The words are simple. It's not the words that catch us. It's actually, what do they mean? And so for a few minutes, I just want to help us get our arms around these, these words of Jesus being forsaken by God and help us ask the question and perhaps answer it. What does it mean for Jesus to be forsaken by God? The, the story is told that the great Martin Luther, the initiator of the Protestant Reformation, was studying this very text. For hours he sat and looked at the words. He said nothing. He wrote nothing. And then all of a sudden he stood up. And he said this. He said it with, with kind of an excitement, but bewilderment, if those two things can happen at the same time. He said, God forsaken by God. How can it be? Indeed, how can it be? How can it be that God is forsaken by God? How can God the Father forsake his own son? For those of us in the room who are parents, can you imagine what would bring you to the brink of saying, I'm going to forsake my child for something that they have done or for who they are? Most of us in this room that are parents can't fathom that, yet it has happened. The word forsaken is, is a very strong word. It means abandon, to desert, to disown, to turn away from, to utterly forsake. And so when Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? When he asked those questions of God the Father, it was simply because he had been forsaken. On the cross, Jesus had been forsaken. The father turned his back on Jesus. In English, that phrase, God forsaken, oftentimes we use that. We use it in our normal conversation. But when we use those terms, we're usually talking about a place that we can't imagine going. I mean, I can't imagine going to that God forsaken place. There's a couple of you that are military in here. There's a couple of God-forsaken places that either you don't want to go in the military or that you've been sent and you remember how life was. 
I've, I've often said that about Fort Drum, Lord God, I cannot go to that God-forsaken place. It's not, it's not that it's God-forsaken. I'm from North Carolina. Going to Fort Drum would just be too cold for me. I visited a buddy of mine, West Point graduate, um, good friend of mine. Uh, his first assignment was uh, Fort Drum. Mine was Fort Campbell. I visited him, and it was November, and I came in shorts from Kentucky, and it was two feet of snow in Fort Drum. I was like, God forsaken. <laughs> Not a place for me. Perhaps Fort Polk, Fort Bliss, some of those other places like that. I shouldn't be naming those because some of y'all might like those places. We don't really mean God forsaken when we say God forsaken. We're just using that as an expression to say it's something that wasn't necessarily desirable to my liking, to my taste. But these words here in regard to Jesus being God forsaken are literal. He's the only human being to whom we can attribute he was forsaken by God. And so as we survey the scriptures, you know, this is this is the only time that Jesus addressed God the Father as my God. And all the other times Jesus talks about God, he uses uh, a familial kind of language. He says, my father, our father. And the reason why he uses no longer a familiar term, but would say my God is because at that moment, Something happened in their relationship, a closeness that was there from eternity was ruptured. And God felt it and Jesus felt it. And he was simply conveying the words of what had happened in a spiritual sense, but also what had happened in a natural sense. Their relationship in that moment was broken. And so the question for us now is, why would God do such a thing? Why would God the Father forsake his son, Jesus? I think we have to admit the, the fact that this is a complex question. It's a complex statement. We're never going to fully get our arms around it because we're not God. And we can assume a lot of things. But this we do know, on the cross, Jesus was forsaken by God. God turned his back on the second person of the Trinity in that moment. At that precise moment, Jesus was bearing the sin of the world. We read the, the words there. There were three hours of darkness. Jesus actually hung on the cross for about six hours. He was Nailed to the cross at about nine o'clock in the morning. It went dark at about three hours later, noon, and it stayed dark. It says the world went dark. We don't know if that, that literally meant uh, that general area, Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, or if it was literal that the whole world went dark for three hours as Jesus slowly died of asphyxiation. But during those hours of darkness, in those moments immediately afterward, Jesus felt the full weight of sin rolled all on his shoulders. Sin 
Sin both past, sin present, and sin future. It was all put on him in that moment of history. The prophet Habakkuk, in chapter 1, verse 13, makes this statement. He says, God can't look with favor upon wickedness. He turns his back toward it. God is too, too pure to approve of the evil that's in our world. And so when we think about this idea of God forsaking his son Jesus, it wasn't that God was falling out of the, the tenderness of love for the second person of the Trinity. It was that God, in sin being poured out on his son, chose not to see his son. He, in, he saw the sin. And because God is pure, he turned his back on the sin that his son bore. So when God looked down and saw his son bearing the sin of the world, instead of seeing Jesus, he saw the sin that he was bearing. And in that awful moment, the father turned away. He turned away in sorrow and deepest pain when he saw what sin had done. What sin had done to our world, what sin had done to his son that was submitting to his will. He turned away in complete revulsion of the ugliness of sin. And when he did that, Jesus was all alone. He was literally completely forsaken, God forsaken, abandoned, deserted. He was disowned. And so when Jesus bore the sins of the world, he bore them all alone. He was on the cross all alone. Even though he had onlookers, close friends, his mother, the disciples looking at him, he was hung on the cross and he felt completely betrayed, condemned, and all alone. The Trinity had been disjointed. Probably the hardest love is a love that's torn apart. For those of you who have, who have loved, who've experienced love of someone and have that love taken from you, that's the hardest love that you can ever experience in your life. And this is what's happening. The eternal love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been disjointed by sin. And this really is indeed the testimony of Scripture. It's what the Bible says. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, uh, Paul writes these words, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when God looked down that day, he saw not the sinless son anymore. He saw sin itself placed on Jesus. Galatians 3.13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. If you'll recall, there's two times that God the Father spoke down from eternity into this world, once at Jesus' baptism and then at the transfiguration. He says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. In one account, he says, listen to him. No more would Jesus hear those words because God is looking down on him now and he's cursed as a man hanging on a tree. Isaiah 53, 6 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That, that word iniquity trips us up. It just means waywardness. It's us doing our own thing the way that we want to do it when we want to do it. It's our iniquity that put Jesus on the cross. If you could think of it this way, all the iniquity, all the evil, all the crime, the hatred of this world, it was all laid on Jesus. And so Jesus, God made Jesus completely identify with, with us. Jesus not only had, he was not only human and had our, our flesh on, but he in that moment was bearing all of the evil that's in us because of our sin. Jesus became a curse for us. He died in our place and all our sins were laid on him. And it was for that reason and, and, and for that reason only that God the Father forsook his beloved son. And so if you could imagine this, this, is, this may be tough for some of you. If you can imagine there's a cesspool of iniquity, of, of just evil somewhere in the world. There's a repository of it. And anything and everything that's bad in our world is located there. Anything and everything that's evil is located there. And that cesspool is taken and it's poured out on Jesus on the cross. That really is what's happening. And it's an ever, ever flowing, ever um, replacing itself repository of evil. Every evil deed is there. Every hatred is there. Theft is there. Adultery, pornography, all the drunkenness, all the bitterness, all the greed, all the gluttony, all the drug abuse, all the crime, cursing, every vile deed, every wicked thought, every vain imagination, all of it is in that repository and it's all being poured out on Jesus and it never ceases. It's laid on Jesus as he hung on the cross. And so... With that thought, there's two questions and two implications for us as we put our arms around Jesus being forsaken on the cross and eventually dying in our place for our sin. And the first question is this. Are you aware of the part that you play in putting Jesus on the cross? Is it evident to you that you have a part in putting Jesus on the cross? I want you to say out loud some scripture verses with me. And particularly, I want you to say out loud what you see in bold there. Let's read together. In the beginning, he was with God and he was God. And the crowd yelled, crucify him. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and the crowds yelled, Crucify him. He is the light of the world. And the crowds yelled, Crucify him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And the crowds yelled, Crucify him. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And the crowds yelled, Crucify him. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And the crowds yelled, crucify him. Every one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the crowds yelled, crucify him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And the crowds yelled, crucify him. He is the spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Crucify him. And we yell, crucify him. I don't know what those words do to you, but they, they burden my heart with the reality that it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. And so here's the situation. A week ago, Jesus comes as king, as prophet, as priest into Jerusalem. And he's cheered as the masses line the streets and they take their robes and they lay them down on the street as a red carpet for for the king who's coming into his kingdom. And they take palm branches and lay those on the ground. And they cheer, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hooray for the son of David. They're excited because their Messiah, at least they, this picture of the Messiah that they wanted is coming. And they expect him to come as a warrior to overthrow the Roman government. But then a day goes by, another day goes by, and a day goes by. And those things that they're expecting of their king don't happen. And so he's betrayed by Judas turned over to the Roman guards, and he goes through three trials, both a Jewish trial and a trial with the Romans. And all those people who were once lifting their hands, shouting with shouts of praise at this king, this prophet, this priest who had come into his kingdom, they're now saying these words. Would you like me to give you Barabbas or let go Jesus, who's the king of the Jews? And they say, we want Barabbas. Crucify him. And it's our sin that does that. We're amongst the crowd yelling out those awful, fitful words. Crucify him. The implication of that is we should never minimize the horror of human sin. Sometimes we minimize our sin and we, we laugh at it. We, we make the jokes, sin, the devil made me do it. And, and you know, we, we are joking when we say that. But sin is a serious issue. It was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. Jesus bore our sin. It was our sin that caused the Father to turn away from the Son. It was our sin floating in that cesspool of iniquity. He became a curse and we were part of the reason. The second question is, is this one. Are you, count, are you counted among those for whom Jesus died? That's, that's a serious question, and it may be one that you can't answer right now. Are you counted among those for whom Jesus died when he died on the cross? The implication of that question is that we should never minimize the cost of our salvation. Jesus died on the cross to save those who would trust in him, who would receive him as king, even though he didn't come as we expect him to come, who would receive him as a prophet, bringing God's word to us, who would come as our mediator before God, but also as our priest ushering us 
into the presence of God. We should never minimize the cost of our salvation. The truth is, many of us, even the most well-intentioned of us Christians, both in this room and out in the area, you know, we become tired of hearing about the, the cross. I mean, it's not a pretty picture, is it? It's a, it's a hard story to hear over and over again, and we're always brought to this point where we have to remember, where we're thought to remember about our own sin, because it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. I mean, sometimes we just want to be here about happier things. Tell me something happy. But without the awful pain of the cross, there would be no happy things to talk about. Jesus brings good news to us through his death. Without the cross, there would be no forgiveness. Without the cross, there would be no salvation. Without the cross, we would be lost forever. Without the cross, our sins would still be upon us. It costs Jesus Christ everything to redeem us. We should never make light of what cost him so dearly. So are you, account, are you counted among those for whom Jesus died? The good news is only good when you know how bad things really are. The, the bad news is that Jesus had to die. The good news is that his death gives us life. And that's what Easter is all about. So if you're here today and you've not received Jesus, then the good news for you is that you, you still have life in you, you still have breath in your body, and you have time to receive him. And the way that you do that is simply by trusting. The Bible says that the way that you come to Jesus is repenting of your sin, the sin that put Jesus on the cross, and believe. Believe that Jesus is everything that the Bible portrays him to be. Believe that God caused him to be betrayed and arrested and put on the cross for you. He died in your place for your sin. Believe that because God didn't leave him in the grave. He rose on the third day, lived, walked among many witnesses, among whom wrote these words of scripture for us, and then God caused him to be ascended to heaven, and he's alive now, sitting at God's right hand, interceding for us. Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. We'll celebrate that on Sunday. Are you among those for whom Jesus died? I pray you are. And if you're not, repent and believe. Let's pray. Lord, we sit in silence, remembering the words of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lord, those are hard to fathom. We confess that we don't know exactly what they mean, that God would forsake God. But even as we wrestle with the words, 
We know the reality is that Jesus died on the cross. Bad news for Jesus, for sure, but good news for us. Because in him bearing the weight of my sin, our sin, you give us his righteousness. He takes our sin, we get his righteousness. Thank you for that. We thank you for this Easter season where we, we're allowed to reflect on all that God has done for us in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for good news. And so we leave here not saddened by Jesus' death. We leave here with smiles on our face. The the news was bad that night. But thank God, Jesus rose again. And it's in his great name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen.